welcome to Unjustly Maligned, the show for people who go against the grain. We seek to rehabilitate overlooked, ignored, derided, and just plain hated contributions to pop culture. Novels, movies, music, comic books, video games, podcasts, whatever. If everyone hates it, we'll find someone who loves it, and let them explain why you should too. This is episode 7, and you can find the show notes at ump.fm. I'm your host, Anthony Johnston, and my guest today is a man who I first came to know through the now infamous Warren Ellis Forum, or WEF, on Delphi, and has been a comics commentator and critic for more than a decade. His capacity for comics and nerd culture is outstripped only by his contributions to the very same, including the Herculean 100 Days of Comics blog. But he's best known for his long-running podcast, House to Astonish, featuring the infamous official handbook of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. He is, of course, Mr. Al Kennedy. Al, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm, uh, uh, I'm in the middle of uh, a slight sort of, uh, how would you put it, a sort of a, a, a plague eradication exercise in my house. And I'm the only one who appears to actually be well. So I'm the one who's doing the runs out to get Lucozade and uh, sugary things to keep the, the wife and kid from uh, slipping into uh, very sad little uh, moods as they try to fight off some bug which has been brought home from nursery. Well, that's, that's why my voice is perhaps slightly lower than it normally is on House of Storage as well. <laughs> People will be wondering. It doesn't sound anything like one of the chipmunks. You do sound quite husky. Compared to <laughs> oh, this is my, uh, my voice for convincing people of things. It, it's, it's more charming. Well, let's see if you can do that. So to start with, give us some, well, tell us what you've chosen and then give us some context of its release and... Uh, why it is maligned, why people look down on it perhaps, or it's overlooked, and why instead you actually really like it. Tell us what it is. Well, I have to say that one of the, 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 the place that I've gone to for this is something where people, you know, when I first say this, are going to go, oh, that's not maligned, it's the most popular thing on television. But we're looking at a very specific aspect of it. So I'm going to Doctor Who here. Doctor Who, of course, at the moment is, if not the most, it's one of the most popular TV shows in the UK over the last few years under the stewardship of Stephen Moffat. It's also got itself up a pretty hefty following in the US. And, you know, you go onto Tumblr and half of Tumblr is fighting the other half of Tumblr about whether 10 or 11 is better and in what way Stephen Moffat must go. Um, but Back in the 1990s, as it may be strange for people to think now, there wasn't Doctor Who. You know, there was Doctor Who novels, there was Doctor Who magazine kept running with a very long-running comic strip. So there was ways to get a, a, a kind of a Doctor Who methadone, but there wasn't a show. The TV show had been cancelled in 1989, I think? 1989, absolutely, yes. And it's so Sylvester McCoy had been the last Doctor on British television back in 1989. And for seven years, there had been no Doctor Who on TV. And it had gotten to a stage where you know, there was a joke about it, about you know, how many Doctor Who fans does it take to change a light bulb? None. We just sit around and wait for it to come back on. <laughs> but then something, something strange happened which was that the BBC entered into a partnership with Fox in the US to produce a pilot episode 
well, it's essentially a backdoor pilot. It was a TV movie, but it was everybody knew it was intended to be a kind of a tester pilot for a series for a Anglo-American co-produced version of Doctor Who. And this would be starring Paul McGann as the Doctor. Um, ironically enough, uh, he was originally meant to have been playing Sharp in the Sharp TV series, broke his leg playing football, and so the part went to Sean Bean. So we could, for want of one slide tackle, live in a world where Sean Bean was the Eighth Doctor. Mm-hmm. What a very different world that would be. It, it is indeed. I mean, he would have died halfway through his own first episode. <laughs> well, and not only that, but where Paul McGann would have been sharp. I know. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. Um, but, but yeah, so Paul McGann was announced as being the, the new Doctor, and it was a, a co-production, to say, between the BBC and Fox. Everyone had kind of high hopes for it. It was going to have money thrown at it for the first time. It was going to be uh, something that actually we could be proud of because of the, the, the Doctor Who TV series to that time, it hadn't even had a drama budget in the BBC. It had had a light entertainment budget. It had been funded from a different department. And so it didn't even have the money that other drama series had up until 1989. So it was famously, you know, people say all the sets wobbled and all this kind of stuff, which is a little bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, it it never looked a million dollars. This was literally going to look millions of dollars. Yeah, let's be clear that when you say a lot of money, we're talking relative to the original series budget, you know, by normal movie standards, possibly even TV movie standards, it really wasn't a large budget, was it? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you, you see the kind of uh, involvement of, of actors and so on that they had in there, the, the big name, the special guest star, who was designed to have people go in, oh, wow, I've seen him in TV Guide listed as being a guest star in this thing, I'll tune in and watch it, was uh, Eric Roberts, Julia Roberts's brother, who is made, if you've never seen him in anything, he is made 100% out of ham. <laughs> hey, don't knock it. I like Eric Roberts. He's been, in, he's been in some fantastic cult movies. Is it Eric Roberts who plays the bad guy in, is it Bloodsport? Uh, probably. I have to say, I don't know, but probably. I haven't seen it in years, but yeah, he plays like, you know, the, the evil martial artist in, I think it's Bloodsport, or maybe it's Kickboxer. I'm sure it's some Van Damme movie anyway. Yeah, well, he's the, the main villain in this Doctor Who 1996 TV movie. And when it came out, it there's the, the whole kind of rose-tinted spectacles aspect of things. At the time, people were like, oh... It's going to be Doctor Who. It's going to be great. New Doctor Who. Oh, we all sit down and watch it. So in you know, 1996, all sat down and watched Doctor Who. And we're like, oh, it's going to be brilliant. And much like when I managed to convince myself that I wanted to go to the cinema to see The Phantom Menace twice, which I, <laughs> I did. I did actually do that for some reason. Um, I sat and watched the, this Doctor Who TV movie and I thought, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. And then you read any review of it. And every review, basically, of the Doctor Who 1996 TV movie, it's not kind. Um, Very few of them, you read them and go, well, that was written by uh, somebody who genuinely loved this film. Unless, you know, there's one which is obviously like, Paul McCann is very good in this, and he's very handsome, and we all love him. Lots of love, Mrs. McGann. You know, that, that, that kind of thing. I don't think she's a top-rated reviewer on Rotten Tomatoes, though, so she doesn't get much waiting. Let's face it, most people who reviewed this 
uh, outside the UK, and frankly, probably even most people in the UK, simply weren't familiar with Doctor Who. And as much as, I mean, it's clear watching this back, I hadn't watched this since it was first broadcast almost 20 years ago. So it was quite an eye-opener watching it again, because I remembered it being a bit naff, a bit TV movie. Um, I couldn't remember much about the plot. I remembered enjoying McGann, Eric Roberts, as you say, you know, made of ham and cheese. Um, <laughs> and that's pretty much it. And the steampunk Victoriana uh, aesthetic. That's about all I remember. And yeah, New Year's Eve and an atomic clock or something. You know, it was all very vague. Watching it back, it's still pretty vague, actually. It's not the most tightly plotted of of, of instalments, it must be said. No, but that's the thing, though, is this is Doctor Who. You know, there are very few Doctor Who stories where you sit down and you go, well, that is uh, certainly up to the new series. Because a few of the new series episodes have been pretty watertight. But up to then, you, there are very few of them you'd sit down and you go, you know, that's an absolute machine. That thing just whirls, <laughs> whirls along like clockwork and there are no loose ends. You know, one of my, my favourite episodes of the original series is a, uh, a serial called Modern Undead which is a Peter Davison story, but it was originally written to feature the original, the, the, the first male companion, William Russell, um, who played Ian Chesterton uh, for William Hartnell. He was supposed to have been in it as a kind of a, a schoolmaster, but they couldn't get him. And so instead they put in Nicholas Courtney as the brigadier, as a retired schoolmaster. And as a result, the entire continuity of every single story featuring uh, the Brigadier and or the unit's task force makes no sense because it, <laughs> this is where the problem of what is called unit dating comes along. And unit dating is not, as it may sound, uh, Match.com for Who fans, um, although it should be. And I should probably launch a Doctor Who dating website and call it unit dating. But um, it, there are many, many uh, issues with regards to tightness of plotting and things being done at last minute in Doctor Who throughout the years. So it's nothing new. It isn't, but I do think that that is one of the things that reviewers probably had a big problem with in this, was they simply weren't as used to something being, as you say, even, you know, I mean, people think of the modern series of having an emphasis of emotional arcs over plot, mm. uh, which is, you know, which I think is fair and there's nothing wrong with that. But he, people have this nostalgic view that oh, old Doctor Who was all hard science fiction and cold logic and it was all great stories that made perfect sense. And that's simply not true at all, is it? No. I mean, there, there were a few people who tried to um, bring in the, the hard science stuff into Doctor Who in the 19th sort of early 1980s, um, the main one being a, a chap called Christopher Bidmead, who was one of the producers of, of, of the sort of script editor of Doctor Who back in the day. But he, he just made it very boring. A, a, another great podcast, Tacky on TV, terrific British Doctor Who podcast. I used to do songs, and one of them was uh, Christopher Bidmead's Calling. Um, <laughs> they uh, rewrote Rob De Niro's calling to be all about how Christopher Bidmead was coming in and making stories more boring. I always felt a little bit, you, as you say, it was uh, the original Who run was cancelled in 1989 after Sylvester McCoy had done several seasons. And I always felt a little bit partly responsible for that because I was one of the people who stopped watching it during McCoy's run. I wasn't a huge fan of him as the Doctor and the stories just... 
I, I just just bored me. It was very end of the pier uh, in his first two seasons. A lot of you know, you had Ken Dodd and Richard Briers and people like that being cast in roles. Ironically enough, his last series, um, the one which uh, saw the show cancelled, was genuinely pretty good and probably the best it had been since early Davison. You know, the best for about seven or eight years. Is that the series with um, serials like Ghostlight and Curse of Fenris? Exactly. That's the ones. That's one. Which I have since gone back and watched because people have told me, oh, no, 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 these ones were really good. But when people look at the, the Doctor Who TV movie and say, oh, it doesn't make sense, they are right. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, <laughs> I'm not, not going to try and defend the plot. The, the second half of the Doctor Who TV movie, where it starts getting into stuff about the Eye of Harmony, which is this power source for all TARDISes, which for some reason is in the Doctor's own TARDIS, and can only be opened by a human looking into it for some reason. Um, that kind of thing. And then where, I mean, spoilers here, the companion dies and he goes back in time using his own TARDIS within the TARDIS to, to bring her back to life again. The kind of the, the Superman 2 kind of thing makes no, <laughs> makes no sense whatsoever. So I'm not going to argue for that. But um, there are so many things about the, the TV movie that are terrific and that really need to be celebrated, I think. It is definitely the, the most maligned, the most overlooked iteration of Doctor Who and I think that's highly unfair because I think there's a lot in this which is laudable and to be uh, very highly recommended. I think this is the first sort of Victoriana stroke steampunk aesthetic version of the Doctor and the Doctor's set which is kind of a feels like a staple now but I'm pretty sure this was the first time it was done isn't it? It's nearly nearly but not quite for a very brief period during Tom Baker's run he used what they were calling the secondary console room. And again, that was kind of dark wood panelling and brass. Ah, but they used okay. it for a very, very short period of time. You know, you're looking at like a season. If there's one really good thing about this movie, it is Paul McGann. Uh, he was, to coin a phrase, very unjustly maligned as the Doctor because he gives a really good performance, especially given the material that he's got to work with. He is terrific. And I think that's been proven with how much later work he's done because he's i mean people have used his doctor in as you said comic stories and also in quite a few of the novels but mcgann has also done quite a few of the big finnish audio dramas hasn't he indeed indeed and a lot of them are, i mean as with it i think big finnish have done hundreds of these audio dramas and you can't keep up a, a quality level all the way through so there are some that are better than some that are worse but Paul McGann has definitely got higher than the normal batting average in terms of the quality of those. And, and part of it is because he is just brilliant as the Doctor. He really nails it. And the fact that he nailed it first time out in, in a movie where he's only in it for 50 minutes of a 90-minute runtime. Yeah, he doesn't even appear until something like 25, 30 minutes into the movie, does he? Yeah, absolutely. Because they decided, for whatever reason, they're very well-intentioned, I think, they wanted to have a proper handover from the previous Doctor, who obviously is Sylvester McCoy. So they bring in Sylvester McCoy, kill him off, and then have him regenerate into Paul McGann. Now, I think that's very sweet, but I think it was the wrong choice. Yeah, I would agree, yes. They, would, they should definitely have done what Russell T. Davis did, just start with a new Doctor, and if you need to say anything about regeneration, then talk about it later. You know, we didn't get to see Paul McGann regenerate until 2013. 
and that is absolutely the right way to have done it. Because what you, what you have was, it, it was a night when you, know, you had Monday night football on. You had um, the episode of Roseanne, where Dan has a heart attack. These were against, these were up against this Doctor Who movie. I agree with you that the way Russell T. Davis re- rebooted it with Christopher Eccleston, uh, and, you know, just sort of he was there, and then we'll explain all the regeneration stuff later, just, you know, have the hero there right from the start. I agree that would have been much more effective. However, if they'd done that, we wouldn't have had McGann's Doctor emerging from the dead, swathed in white robes. <laughs> and, you know, just in case you're not getting it, oh, he does a crucifixion pose. I know, yes, yes. <laughs> he doesn't even have the decency to wait three days either. <laughs> three hours. And I, I want to know what kind of person leaves a velvet frock coat in a hospital locker. <laughs> well, um, this is one of the other interesting things, is that you've got this, that all the hospital staff are going to this um, New Year's Eve party, which for some reason is fancy dress. And for some reason, the person who's going as well, Bill Hickok, thinks that well, Bill Hickok dressed like Lord Byron. So you're saying he gets that outfit from the morgue technician's locker? Yeah, the two hospital tech, the, the two guys who are like, oh, who are you going as? I'm going as, well, Bill Hickok. In the scene where he's wandering around, he goes into the locker, he gets out, oh, there's the voiceover over the top, that, oh, who are you going as, well, Bill Hickok? So it's, this is supposed to be this well, Bill Hickok costume. But hang on a second, that locker's in a part of the hospital, Frank, that looks like it's ready to be demolished. Yeah, it's like an American Horror Story hospital. Yeah, it looks like something out of Silent Hill, and that's where their lockers are? Well, there's cutbacks, obviously. <laughs> Not so much that Dr. Grace can't afford a night at the opera in her lovely ball gown. I know, she's on call. How unprofessional is that? She's like, oh, I'm on call for cardiac surgery. I'm going to the opera. And I'm going to dress up in a far too tight corset and go to the opera in that. And then when I get called in, I'm going to do the surgery in my ball game. In the ball game, exactly. Oh, and she also has a remarkably nice house. This, pro- this production did not have all the money in the world to play with. So like, oh, we need to film in Grace's house. Well, we can use this show home. It's not furnished. Okay, well, we'll make a line in there about how her, her boyfriend has overnight taken all their furniture away because she ran out on him at the, at the opera. That, oh, is that that's, true? I, I'm, I'm surmising, but I can't see why Elsie would just be like, here's a beautiful, airy home with zero furniture. <laughs> oh, I hope that's true. <laughs> you, know, you know a lot more about who than me. Uh, I mean, I grew up watching it like everybody, but, you know, you're much more of an enthusiast than me. So I've got to ask, the whole business about, like, this is supposed to be the master's, basically the end of his life. He's ended his generations. He's got no regenerations left, and he appears to have been cremated. And then his soul uh, becomes this weird CGI... A slithering slime eel yeah, thing that snake. can also become some kind of cobra. I mean, you know, I'm not going to nitpick because it doesn't make sense in some ways because it's Doctor Who, but also, like, what? Yeah, I think that the Master had been on his last life probably for about the past four actors that had played him. <laughs> um, he keeps being like, oh, I've run out of regenerations. He's, he's the equivalent, essentially, of somebody who keeps forgetting to put 50p in the electricity meter. And he has to keep getting new ones, but he keeps getting new ones from various places. But you would think that if, if it's something a Time Lord can do, um, then the, the Doctor would have been a bit like, well, 
I, sh I should probably take a bit more precaution than just put him in a box. He is planning to take my body so that he will live and I will die. Oh, no! He does kind of lock it up with the sonic screwdriver and think that that should do it. So he presumably thinks, oh, well, that's, that's enough. But it's just he's a bit he's just a bit stronger than than he turns out than, than the seventh doctor thought he was going to be. A sonic screwdriver, which incidentally is never used again in the entire movie. Nope. What a waste. He gets handed it in a paper bag at the end. And he goes, ah, oh, my sonic screwdriver. Thank you. Oh, it's no wonder that American audiences were like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is a problem it shares with things like, I don't know if you ever saw the Green Lantern movie. The Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie. The recent one? No, yeah. I haven't. I, I, no, I was warned off that. It will take, well, I'll tell you something. It would make a good episode of this if you can find somebody who actually enjoyed it. I mean, you might be looking a while. <laughs> but uh, it, it suffered from trying to put everything to do with the Green Lantern from the whole of history into one movie. And I think that's a little bit where the Doctor Who 96 movie stumbles um, and it, it's done with such love, but it, you know, the first 30 seconds, it's saying it, it's on the planet Scarrow where my old enemy, the master was executed or whatever it is that they say. By the Daleks who you never see. By the Daleks. Yeah. And it's just, well, I see why you did that. I see why you put the seal of on over absolutely everything. <laughs> and I, you know, it's massively accessorized this TARDIS. Everything is plastered with the seal of on. And I see why you wanted to be talking about Gallifrey a lot and why you want to have the Eye of Harmony in there. And yeah, I want to have him with his scarf and his jelly babies and all these kind of little kisses to the past, as John Nathan Turner would have said. But it doesn't help the programme you're trying to make. Um, and it's, it's so endearing. You just kind of go, oh, well, I see, you love it. You love this thing so much. And it really comes across because they, they, there's a genuine um, nostalgia and admiration for the old show uh, in this new version. And people say, oh, well, there's a, there's a motorbike chase. That's not very Doctor Who. And it's like, I would advise you, go back and watch John Pertwee's Doctor Who era and see how many... Kung Fu Doctor. How many chases he got in that. A man who wanted a, a car, so they gave him a car, and then he was like, a car is not enough. I want a personal hovercraft. But you're absolutely right. One of, one of my notes, I'm just looking through my notes, and one of them is specifically, they really are trying to cram a lot of who continuity in here, and it's just all too much. Yeah, it, it just can't fit it all in. I can really admire the ambition of it. Because what they want to do is let's let's have something that's got a huge uh, world-shattering significance. So the world is going to be pulled inside out through the eye of harmony, and it's because of one of the Doctor's worst enemies. And it wouldn't be happening if the Doctor weren't there in the first place. Not this kind of stuff. And that's all quite cool, and I really enjoy that aspect of it. It's just a little bit kind of it's it's not the cake; it's the frosting. You know, the cake is fine. The frosting is too much. Also, it needed a, a good editor, both to cut some of that you know, tribute stuff out, but also for things like, like why, why is midnight the deadline? That's never explained as far as I can see. It's like the world's going to end at midnight. Why midnight? Just because. <laughs> I think it's because of drama. Well, <laughs> clearly, yes. It would have been rubbish if it had been like, Grace, Grace, the world's going to end. It's going to end at 25 past 11. The big pilot, when they're trying to get to the Institute, and, uh, and the doctor does the very clever thing where he takes the cop's gun and threatens to shoot one of his own hearts. 
threatens to shoot himself. It is absolutely terrific. Right, except when he then gives the gun to Dr. Grace and she shoots the cop's bike, they're surrounded by police. She fires a gun at a police bike and not a single person comes over to see what's going on. Nothing. No reaction whatsoever. They're all quite busy dealing with the chickens. <laughs> the chickens crossing the road. There's loads and loads of chickens. That, yeah, exactly. Because they're like, well, finally we'll get an answer to the purpose of these chickens crossing the road. Everybody stop and watch. If this had actually been made primarily by British people, I could forgive that more because I could maybe assume that it was some kind of social commentary on, oh, this is America. You, you know, you fire guns and nobody takes a blind bit of notice. But it was made by Americans and it just seems such a strange thing. Like they, There are literally a dozen cops within 10 paces. She fires a gun and not one of them even looks round. I don't think they could have afforded to have paid more cops to have lines for. <laughs> yeah. well, something I do think quite interesting about that scene in particular is the doctor takes the gun and points at it himself, which is so... Doctory, like it's it nails the character. Yes, like he absolutely would be like, you know, I'm going to shoot myself if you don't let us through. But yes, well, given that this is American police, they probably would just be like, well, let's just give you a hand with that and then empty their clips into him anyway. <laughs> um, but he then takes the gun, gives it to Grace. Grace immediately just points it at a policeman. It's like, well, that's you've already proved you're not the smartest, Grace. To be honest with you. Uh, talking about nailing the character, after that, when they get to the Institute, there is a lovely scene where he sets off the fire alarm. And she says, Why'd you do that? Up. Come on. And that, that alone, I was like, yes, that is the Doctor. That's perfect. My, my favourite moment in the entire thing is, again, it's a Paul McGambit, but it's when they're out wandering around after he's, uh, he's gone to her house and having changed into this full your frock coat and he's taken time to do up a cravat but hasn't taken time to find any shoes right <laughs> so he's wandering around bare feet with his toe tag still on because he was dead for a bit um and you know he decides that the person he wants to follow home because she's humming Puccini and that was the last thing that he heard before he died um this being the person who actually killed him in the first place i think grace is alone in being the only companion who's ever murdered the doctor <laughs> I think murder's a bit strong. Well, killed through medical neglect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, he would have been fine from the bullets, and they're quite explicit about that, but whilst he's healing up, she pumps him with so much anaesthetic that he actually dies on the operating table. Um, but anyway, so they get back to her house. He steals, essentially, or she gives him, but he takes the, the shoes that belong to her boyfriend who's left. A, a boyfriend who, by the way, takes every bit of furniture from the entire house, but leaves his shoes behind. It's a man with <laughs> weird priorities, but anyway. Um, and so they're, out, they're outside in the night, and he's talking about lying in the warm Gallifreyan evenings in the grass with his dad looking up at the meteor storms and so on. And then he does that, but he goes, yes, yes, yes! These shoes, they fit perfectly. And runs away. And it's just such a brilliantly, beautifully played little moment. And it, and is, I, I keep using this word doctory, but it nails the doctor down just there. It is one of the scenes that, yes, another scene that absolutely feels like the doctor, that we know that those of us who grew up with the doctor and enjoy watching it now, 
that's the Doctor that we know, yeah. Yeah, and it's weird to think that out of all the actors that were involved in the casting process, and there were a lot of people, I mean, some of the people who actually auditioned for it, Robert Lindsay auditioned. Wow. Uh, Tim McKernery auditioned for it. John Sessions, Tony Head, Tony Slattery auditioned for it. Uh, Mark McGann auditioned for it. So basically every actor in Britain who was out of work at the time. Yeah, well, two fellows who turned it down were Eccleston and Capaldi. They were invited to audition and, and decided not to. No. Um, Capaldi didn't think he would get it, and so he turned it down. Uh, Eccleston thought that he wasn't well enough known, so he didn't want to go in for something that would potentially uh, lead to him being typecast. That I can see, actually, especially given what happened when Eccleston did then eventually take the role. You know, he clearly had the same worries. But Capaldi, oh my goodness, a young Capaldi, because back then, 20 years ago, you know, Peter Capaldi was... Well, he still is rake thin, but he was, you know, he was a slim, young, handsome, young actor. We could have had the Peter Capaldi who was in Neverwhere. Can you imagine that world where the eighth Doctor was Peter Capaldi? Out of all the things that are in the movie, the big success is definitely its lead actor. It also hits some nice notes of things like, you know, Sylvester McCoy gets a dignified exit from the show, which, while not great for the narrative or great for the purposes of you know attracting a new American audience, whatever, is actually a really kind of endearing and laudable thing to do for an actor who, you know, there was no way he would have expected to have been involved in a brand new, big-budget US-UK co-production of, of Doctor Who. Well, and especially given that the cancellation of the series was not his fault. I mean, like I say, he, he wasn't really to my taste, but he wasn't, it's not like he's a bad actor or anything. No, but, but it was on his watch, so, you know, he, he may well have thought, well, I'm just not going to get a look in at this. Um, you've got a very playful and fun uh, interaction, I think, between the Doctor and Grace. Um, Grace, I think, is a kind of a, a, an underwritten character, let's say, but she's played with as much charm as could possibly be humanly mustered uh, by Daphne Ashbrook, who I think is, is great in it. Did she return? I was wondering about this. So I, I haven't actually like heard or read any of the novels or audio plays of the further adventures of this doctor. Does he, you know, in the fiction, does he return for her and she becomes his companion? Because it- No, because she's owned by Fox. Oh. She and Changley are both co-owned by Fox. So the actors... Daphne Ashbrook and E.G. So, who played the, the characters, have done big finishes as different characters. Oh, like, they've got their own range as different characters. The, the other thing that does, that I did love about it, and this is purely from a sort of, okay, well, this, this is not serious, but it's fun point of view, was the, the very last, the climax, the last sort of 20 minutes, um, when Eric Roberts walks out wearing <laughs> that outfit. That high-collared, leather-caped, glittering, big-loved villains. I, I mean, it may as well have villains stamped across the back in diamante, you this know? This pantomime dame outfit. Yeah, and he you can tell that he is absolutely loving hamming it up in that outfit at the and, and that terrific line, that, like the, the, the well-quoted line. I always dress for the occasion. Yeah, yeah, Drez. Who says Drez? But no, he, he, he certainly thought, well, what I'm going to do with the Master is ham it up. And, and you know, this is Eric Roberts. 
what I'm going to do with anything is ham it up. Well, but if they're going to put him in that outfit, what other sane response is there? Exactly. It's, it's, this is not a, a, an outfit for sober reflection. This is for Doctor <laughs> Who, the musical. <laughs> he should have come down those stairs like, dun, 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 like kicking his way down the stairs. I was thinking more Frank and Fur to myself, but yeah, you know, same difference. And God bless Hollywood, where even Doctor Who has to end with a fist fight. <laughs> like the, you've had all the drama you've had your science fiction and this weird torture contraption that's going to transfer life force from one time lord to another which i've never seen before and seems really bizarre that it would be in the titles whatever you've had all that now people are going to throw punches yeah it's you've, you've eaten your spinach now you can have your pudding just in terms of things that hollywood demands that people stick in there the other major uh, bone of contention uh, of course, is the snogging. The, oh, yes. This, because yes. Doctor Who fans did not, and many still do not, like the fact that the Doctor kisses Grace three times during the course of the, the story. And you're like, oh, this is completely out of, uh, completely out of character. Um, although, as, as the great line in uh, Day of the Doctor, where uh, um, David Tennant snogs um, Queen Elizabeth and John Hurt turns to Matt Smith and is like, does this sort of thing crop up much now then? And, and, Matt, Smith, <laughs> yeah. and Matt Smith's like, it does start to happen, yeah. <laughs> but if we actually look at the circumstances of those kisses, the first is pure exuberance, right? He's just super happy. And the second, she's like, do that again. And he's like, all right. Because he's super happy. He's just like, I'm having a great time. I've just regenerated and I'm having a, a, a brilliant will of the time. And then when the, they're leaving and he gives her another kiss, I kind of, to be honest, I kind of see the doctor sometimes, he just does things for his companions because he knows that it makes them happy. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I, don't, I don't think that the doctor is massively like, for Grace, what a hottie, I want to plant a snog on her. But it's clearly like, well... She likes kissing, so bye. This <laughs> is how we say goodbye. <laughs> well, and we saw that in the, the climax to the most recent series, didn't we? With uh, Capaldi's Doctor and Clara basically lying to one another to save the other's hurt feelings. So, you know, that's uh, the, absolutely nothing wrong with that. I do feel that you're having to reach a little to justify these kisses, but then I never really had a problem with the kisses. I think the, I think the first two are pretty easily justified as just... They're not romantic kisses. They're just, they're massively exuberant things. Well, and I was going to say he's only human, but uh, of course in this, he's only half human, which is something else that like that completely came out of left field for me. I presume that was entirely an invention of this movie. Ah, yeah. And it's a Hollywood thing. It was a, a demand of Fox. You know, we have to make him relatable for some reason. What, and saying I'm half human suddenly makes him relatable. People at home will be like, I'm human. He's just like me. <laughs> I know it's ridiculous, but the, the, the brilliant thing about it is that in later um, uh, iterations of the Doctor, like various novels and so on, there have been various explanations of this. One in, which started off a massive, big, long um, uh, overarching plot, which went from um, novels in, kind of into some audios and then into a totally different spin-off. Um, set of books from another company and uh, a, a totally separate comic book spin-off was that there was a group called Faction Paradox um, 
created by Lawrence Miles, who had been messing with the Doctor's timeline and, and who had reached back into his past and screwed around with him when he regenerated into the Eighth Doctor to make him be half-human. Um, Russell T. Davis wrote a line for, uh, I think it was for David Tennant's regeneration episode, which was cut from the final version because he thought it was a bit too fanish, where uh, somebody asked him about the fact that he regrows his hand after it's been cut off by the Sycorax. And he says, oh yeah, all sorts of crazy stuff could happen with DNA. I was half human for about 24 hours back in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, to be honest, I find it very difficult to get worked up about that kind of stuff. Um, the, the great saving grace, as it were, of the Doctor Who TV movie is that it didn't go to a series because if you read up about the stuff that uh, was planned for the, the intended series... We dodged a bullet. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It would have been the doctor uh, on a quest to find his father, Ulysses. Oh, dear. Oh, oh, just lots of terrible, awful things that were going to be happening in this version of the the show. But the, the 96 TV movie, while it's far from perfect, has got a lot in it which is very Doctor Who-y and very enjoyable. Uh, most, most of it does stem out, I think, from Paul McGann, but... Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of other stuff in there as well. Given that it didn't go to a series and given that McGann, you know, compared to many of the other actors who've played Doctor Who, has kind of been given short shrift in terms of, you know, the number of times that he's been on screen as the Doctor might have you, it almost feels watching this as if it almost set the template for what they would then do nearly 10 years later with the reboot with Eccleston. And certainly by the time that they get to... Um, the 10th Doctor and the 11th especially, it feels much more, I mean, you know, for all the low budget and the bad effects and slightly hammy, you know, in the, but the, just f- in the feel of it, this actually feels more akin to the modern series than to the old series that ended with McCoy. And I think that's fair. When you look back at the, the old Doctor Who series, one thing which it is, is very theatrical. And I mean that in a literal sense. It, it's, yeah. it's, it stems from the fact that it, you know, it came out of the, 19, the early 1960s. It was staged like a, a BBC television programme of the 1960s. You know, it was done like a, a, a multi-set play, essentially, particularly to begin with. As time went on, that, that sort of... It, it, it absorbed things from a variety of other sources. I mean, to be honest, I don't have time to go into this, but the place where Doctor Who in the 1970s probably absorbed most of its influence was Top of the Pops. But anyway. Um, <laughs> wow, that's a theory I'd like to hear. I've got a very long speech on that, but I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> um, as time went on, it got a little bit more uh, willing to play around with stuff and to do stuff which it wouldn't have done before. When you look at something like the McCoy storyline, uh, The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, a lot of it's filmed in this tent. I mean, because, ironically, it was because of an industrial uh, dispute at the BBC, which meant they couldn't film in the studio, so they'd set up a tent in the car park. And so they literally filmed in a big top. <laughs> um, and it leads to a, a very different atmosphere from a lot of uh, other Doctor Who. Um, but even then, it was creating its own little identity. It wasn't like the, the flashy TV dramas. And it certainly wasn't like the flashy TV dramas of the 1990s. Because 1990s, for sci-fi TV, you were in an X-Files and Babylon 5 world. And you, couldn't, you could not compete with that as Doctor Who, I don't think. In terms of the, the visual flash and the, the kind of um, the directorial language 
essentially. And so what the 96 movie gave them a chance to do was to show what would a Doctor Who be like that was actually shot in the style of these 1990s American um, big budget genre drama series. Well, there's also probably the, uh, was it Peter Cushing? We don't talk about the Peter Cushing stuff. Right. <laughs> but that has been genuinely completely erased from, from history. It's, it's it? not, from he's a human scientist called Doctor Who. It's oh, really? I've never actually seen the it. remakes of two of the William Hartnell stories. Ah. Ah, I see remakes, very loose remakes. But yeah. uh, he's not an official doctor. <laughs> not a real doctor. He's not canon. Also, I'd just like to point out that uh, this is the first time that I've seen, and I think may have been the first time that it appeared, the magic healing power of the TARDIS. Mm, yes. The, Go- the golden sparkly magic healing power that brings people back to life. Yeah, so at least this time it didn't have a, a Murray Gold score of somebody going, oh. <laughs> yeah, you saw it here first. Oh, also, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first instance of um, a reworking of the theme tune to make it a regular beat to get rid of the weird syncopated rhythm that the original, uh, you know, Grainer Derbyshire version had. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's certainly it's the first version that starts with the middle eight. That's true, it does, yes. It's bizarre, it comes in with a da 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 da, da which is the middle eight of it, which is really strange. But I mean, it's got, it turns that kind of, um, the weird heartbeat, which kind of lies behind the Doctor Who theme tune, that bum 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 It turns into a kind of a Deep Space Nine style martial drumbeat. Well, and that's been done in the, the modern series, in the reboot. The, the theme, every series it seems, the theme becomes increasingly regular and less weird, frankly. But it feels like this, I, I'd actually complete, because like I say, I hadn't watched this since 1996 when it was broadcast on British television. It feels like this was actually maybe the first instance of that. Yeah, it, it's it's one of a number of things which kind of point in the direction of where Doctor Who was going to have to go if it was going to be a, a TV show of the 90s. To be honest, I think we're probably quite lucky that there wasn't a 1990s version of Doctor Who on television. Where it survived was in uh, the novels that were published by Virgin, which uh, were on the whole pretty terrific and and brought a, a much more kind of, I don't want to say adult view, because, you know, there's the, I won't repeat it here, but, you know, Alan Moore's aphorism about what adult means in, in these sorts of circumstances. And there was a bit of that to it. But on the whole, it, it was genuinely, you know, you you were watching this programme when it stopped in 1989. You're, you're still wanting to read about it now. You're probably at least in your late teens. So we're not going to condescend to you, you know, Right, yeah, yeah. No, nobody watching the TV movie out of nostalgia, sorry, reading the novels out of nostalgia, is going to be a child, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's worth, I mean, you know, this is not a good movie. <laughs> it really isn't. But I, I don't think it would stand up to uh, a forensic examination of the plot. I think if you try and untangle it like a set of earphones, all that's going to happen is you get more frustrated and decide you can do without the music this time. And get the scissors out and cut them in half. But I would say to anybody listening who enjoys modern Doctor Who, it probably is worth 90 minutes of your time going back and watching this because it does feel like a lot of the things that people like about modern Who were kind of in here, in in proto-form. I, I would go one further than that. I would say if you like modern Doctor Who, it is definitely worth one hour of your time. And what, cut out the first 30 minutes? It's not, cut out the last 30 minutes. <laughs> 
but the last 30 minutes has Eric Roberts in the the, you know, the pantomime. <laughs> uh, okay, stop at the point where Eric Roberts walks down the stairs and write your own ending. Because everything up to that, I think, is various shades of pretty terrific. After that, yes, it absolutely collapses like a house of cards. But um, the first hour of it, I think, is pretty great. All right. Uh, Al, where can people find you if they like what you have to say? Well, you can uh, find me on Twitter, um, where I'm usually talking nonsense about comics, um, which uh, my Twitter handle is at house to astonish um, If you want to uh, follow our podcast, then, um, well, depending when this episode goes out, it may or may not be back. We're on a bit of a hiatus at the moment due to the recent arrival of my daughter. But um, that is uh, house to astonishcom um, The podcast itself, you can get all our episodes to date um, that are online at uh, house to astonishlibsyncom L-I-B-S-Y-N. Uh, what else? That's, that's, that's mostly me, I have to say. You can also follow my um, co-podcaster, Paul O'Brien's comics reviews and uh, re- professional wrestling write-ups at HouseToAstonish.com. Um, Paul O'Brien is, of course, your co-host on House to Astonish. I, I would probably say to listeners, if you want to listen to House to Astonish, there are enough episodes that, frankly, even if you started listening now solid, even while you were asleep... Uh, you probably wouldn't get to the end before it returns from its hiatus, regardless of when this is broadcast. (laughs) That is uh, very fair. And I would thoroughly recommend it. Thank you very much. All right, Al, thank you very much for coming on the show. Terrific. Thanks so much, Anthony. You've been listening to Unjustly Maligned, Episode 7, with Anthony Johnston and Al Kennedy. Unjustly Maligned is a 7RQ production for The Incomparable and is made in England. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. sitting watching it and all I could think was oh man I'm making Anthony watch this <laughs> the oh the very first scene with Dr. Grace where she's in the opera crying oh, with no. Madame Butterfly oh, no. that's oh, so like, funny oh my god like su- the art of subtlety is dead and I was just like you're on call woman <laughs> you should not be at the at the blooming at the opera <laughs> I know I know and I love how 1999 was the future back then. <laughs> it's very funny. Uh, There's a, a terrific novel um, called Unnatural History, which is one of the, the Eighth Doctor novels. And it's, I guess, Kate Orman that wrote it. And it's set in San Francisco during the following year after the TV movie. Is this the collapse of civilization? Because it does feel as if there were trying to get a sort of cyberpunk vibe going it's, you know he goes back there and you know there's pterodactyls in the sky and stuff like that <laughs> it, you know it's pretty much like oh after that thing that happened in San Francisco in 1999 San Francisco went really weird <laughs> <laughs>
she's co-owned by Fox even. Um, it's the same reason that IDW in their comics can't use Death's Head in either, you know, Titan can't use him in uh, their Doctor Who comics and uh, IDW can't use him in the Transformers comics because he's a, a Marvel character. What was that thing with the gag with the cop on the bike? Who's got? He's like, I've got my brakes. He drives into the TARDIS. He drives into the TARDIS. I, you hear him drive around, and he drives. Out. He's he's just some random cop. I would have loved it if they just had him not drive back out again. Yes. Just like somewhere in the TARDIS, forever there's, in there. Yeah. It's a cop on a bike. There is a Cyberman somewhere in the TARDIS because in uh, I think it's in a Tom Baker story, a Cyberman wanders in and is never mentioned again. <laughs> so somewhere wow. wandering around in the bowels of the TARDIS there's a Cyberman hopelessly lost 